welcome back to the Conversations Podcast. Uh, we're doing something just a little bit different for this. You know, for the last several weeks, uh, we've had different guests coming in and we've got to interview them and, and learn some really fascinating stuff. Um, today is kind of fun. I get to, I guess I'm the coach here, so I get to call my own number. So, <laughs> um, uh, we're actually going to be listening to a sermon that I preached several years ago, I think 2014, 15, something like that, uh, but about this remarkable group of people uh, who just in this this little moment in time, this little place on earth, God breathed on them and they did incredible things for the glory of God. And so here in just a minute, um, we're going to just run the audio from that sermon um, and it's it's our own little it's it's another little piece of history though. Yeah, and guys, I mean, if you've been listening to this the last few weeks, we've had, as you know, some pretty remarkable guests, remarkable conversations. And here's the thing: I was there when this sermon was preached a few years ago, and I don't want my 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 friend Aaron here to get a big head, but man, it was a great, great sermon. I think it was pivotal in the life of our church. So I would say this sermon uh, competes with all these conversations in terms of what we can glean from it, what we can learn from it. Um, but you know, the Clapham Saints, as as you're going to hear in just a few minutes, um, these were individuals. Uh, some of them were pretty extraordinary in terms of clout, you know, and where they came from. And some of them were, were relatively uh, ordinary people. And But they got caught up in this extraordinary thing that God was calling them to and these extraordinary things that their Christian faith and witness um, was calling them to. And so ended up doing literally world-changing things in the name of Jesus, even though they were ordinary people. And so what I loved a few years ago is just experiencing how in the life of our church, uh, our people who had everyday jobs said, how can we uh, step into the calling that God's called us to right here where we eat, work, learn, live, and play? Um, how can we say yes to Jesus right where we're at? So I'm excited for you guys to hear this sermon if you've not heard it yet. Yeah, so uh, zero in, we're, we're going to learn together about, uh, I think, the most incredible small group perhaps ever. And then hopefully the takeaway is... Um, these were regular people that God used in extraordinary ways, um, and and maybe we could do something similar in our own day. So uh, thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next week with even more. Stay tuned for a bit about the Clapham Saints. Let me read you a verse, a verse that... Uh it was one of the first verses I really landed on as I was like a little kid, like nine, 10 years old. I was raising this awesome Christian home and we were presented with scripture an awful lot. And we kind of park in the New Testament for the most part. And I was like, I'm going to venture off on my own into the depths of the Old Testament and see what I find. And I found a bunch of weird stuff that I didn't understand. But I remember even as a little kid stumbling across this verse and even, I don't know, maybe nine or 10 years old, but do you find that a lot of your memories are nine or 10 years old in that range? I do, so I actually don't know when, but I remember being struck by this verse as a little kid and going, yeah, maybe, maybe, and being really excited. Here we go. Lord, I've heard of your fame. I stand in all of your deeds, Lord. Repeat them in our day, in our time, make them known. And read it again. Lord, I've heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, Lord. Repeat them in our day and our time. Make them known. In other words, Lord, um, I've heard some pretty amazing stories about some pretty amazing stuff that you've done throughout history. 
I've heard of great outpourings. I've heard of people being healed. I've heard of lives being transformed. I've heard about nations being changed. I've heard some pretty amazing stories. And I like stories. And I like history. And I like looking back. But like I'm here right now. And I'm just kind of wondering. And this is really what's happening in this verse. I'm just, I'm just kind of wondering if maybe, maybe you'd do that stuff in our day. Like, like maybe it doesn't all have to be past tense. Maybe it could happen among us now. Maybe those things that happened in the past can be renewed in our day. The exciting thing is, is that our God has this incredible, incredible track record of taking people who are fully devoted to him. Fully, fully devoted to him, like putty in his hands. Not necessarily super talented or brilliant or amazing or phenomenal people, but just people who are putty in his hand and they are willing to follow him anywhere. And he takes those people and he does incredible things through them. And he changes things on a, on a massive scale. Um, like he has done in the past, he is doing around the world now. And maybe, maybe he'd do it here through us. Maybe it's already begun. I, I truly believe that if we're putty in his hands, he'll do that stuff through us. He can do the stuff through you. That he'll repeat them in your day. And in your time and through your efforts and your faithfulness in following him, he could repeat them in your day, in your life, in his time, in your time, they could be made known. But first we have to decide that we're going to follow him. That we're going to follow him anywhere. That we're going to go wherever he asks and, and, and do whatever he leads us to do. And that's not just a small thing. That's the thing. It's a huge step in front of us all. I want to read you a quote. Um, Frederick Beekner, a really sharp guy, says this. Power, success, happiness, as the world knows them, are his who will fight for them hard enough. Did you catch it? You, you're looking for power, success, happiness. You determine you fight hard enough, you're going to get them. But peace, love, joy are only from God. And God is the enemy whom Jacob fought there by the river, of course. Now, it's out of context for a lot of us. That's referring to another one of those Old Testament stories. If you're a church kid, you know what that's talking about, but we'll keep going. Um, God is the enemy whom Jacob fought there by the river, of course, and whom in one way or another, we, all of us, fight. God, the beloved enemy. Our enemy because before giving us everything, he demands of us everything. Before giving us life, he demands our lives, ourselves, our wills, our treasure. Now, this isn't about being accepted by him, like we earn our way to him. Um, this is a picture of what it means to follow him after we've been redeemed by him. And what he's talking about, simply, is being putty in his hands. For him to shape and mold however he sees fit. Let's do some history stuff. I think this stuff is kind of cool and interesting, so I want to tell you about a group of folks. Uh, there's a neighborhood in the southwest corner of London, England. I don't know if you're like geography buffs. Uh, you may have heard of it, probably not. Just a little place called Clapham. And uh, Clapham is essentially a series of homes in this little neighborhood that's wrapped around a park, and the park's called Clapham Commons. And it's a pretty diverse place. There's wealth there. There's poverty there. Um, I, I think, I, again, I haven't been there, but I, I think if you sort of picture the Springbrook area in Alcoa, um, you might have a pretty decent picture of, and maybe you're not too far off if that's the picture that comes into your mind. And in that little neighborhood, there is, there's, a, there's a little church. 
And that little church, great church, uh, but little church, fewer attendees than we have here at our church. Um, and it's been there a while. In the late 1700s, early 1800s, um, that church was, was, was really kind of hopping. And that little church had a small group that met within it. And that small group was just a small group, closely connected friends. Um, they had friendships, and it's really important to talk about this a lot. They had friendships that were about Jesus, all right? Not about sports or the weather or business or commerce. They had friendships that first and foremost were about Jesus. That's who they talked about. So these great friendships that were about Jesus, and they just lived together. They lived in the same area. They cared about the same stuff. They valued the same things. They just walked out their lives together. Just, you know, a small group. We've got dozens of them. Except this yeah, little small group of people in this little town a couple hundred years ago decided that they were going to be putty in God's hands. They, they decided that they were going to go and do whatever it is that God put them up to, period. And that their, their, their answer to all questions from the Lord in advance was, yeah, I'm in. And they decided that together. And so God asked them to change the whole world. And so they did. A small group of you know, people in this little church, in this little neighborhood a couple hundred years ago. God asked them to change the world, and, and they did. So their first and greatest passion as, as a group um, was for more people to know Jesus. And this group, if you imagine, I don't know what you do in your small group, but they would sit around, and they would dream, and they would scheme, and they would plan about ways that they might make the whole world better. And they saw a lot of suffering and injustice in the world. They saw a lot of people who didn't know Jesus. And they said, we, we have to do something about this. And um, their first passion, what they were really, first and foremost, they made no bones about that. They wanted more people to know Jesus. And so in order to do that, they started planting churches. So a small group within a relatively small church said, let's go start a bunch of churches all over England. And they did. They planted and supported Scores of churches that scattered all over England with untold hundreds of people, if not thousands of people, coming to Jesus through just those efforts. So a small group that planted a ton of churches all over their country. Pretty good. It's a good group. And that's like if that was it, that would be enough, but that's like nowhere near it. And they also they had this dream that the gospel could be shared with the entire British Empire. Now, at the time, uh, again, late 1700s, the British Empire was far and away the greatest superpower in the world. They had colonies that spread all over the planet. And they said, you know what? We have this incredible reach because of this. Let's reach and through the British Empire, let's make sure everyone has a chance to know Jesus. And so they started something called the Christian Missionary Society. And through the Christian Missionary Society, through an incredible amount of effort, I mean, these things don't just happen, but through incredible effort, sweat, blood, toil, they poured their lives into the Christian Missionary Society, and they sent and they employed hundreds of missionaries, hundreds, who went all over the world planting churches. Not only that, but they, they pioneered a couple of really significant and at the time really radical ideas um, in, in sort of the, the field of missions. Really controversial. They got a lot of flack for it, but they were willing to die on these two hills. They were really insistent. First of all, they just flat out insisted that anybody could go and be a missionary. 
that you didn't have to be like a man of the cloth. You didn't have to be a trained clergyman. You could be what we call lay people or just like not somebody who's like a professional Christian. You have to, they shed all of that stuff. And like, if you love Jesus, you're willing to spread the message. You can go plant churches throughout the world. And they release tons of, you know, just regular people to go plant churches. They found them, they released them, they sent hundreds of them all over the world. That was their first real uh, huge contribution ideologically to missions. And second, they coined the term and invented the idea indigenous churches. It came from this group of people. They insisted, they just insisted that missionaries should start churches and then they should hand them over to indigenous people because the point was to give them Jesus, not make them British. All right. And that sounds like, well, yes, of course. And that's like how everybody does does that. And we all know that, except this was completely unheard of 200 years ago. They insisted upon it and man, did they do it? It's pretty good. And, and that wasn't the only thing, stuff that they did. They did more stuff. They founded the Sunday school society. And through that, they supported and served literally hundreds of Sunday schools all over Great Britain. And now we think Sunday school, we think, you know, felt boards and people like sitting in classes before they go to the big church, right? Um, That's not what Sunday school was in the 1700s in the UK. It was this beautiful outreach expression. Now, Sunday school is a rocking awesome thing. We need to be discipled and know Jesus. Don't hear me painting like this juxtaposition here by any means. But, but. They had this beautiful outreach. And what they would do is they would go on Sundays to poor, marginalized people who didn't have access to the gospel. And on the streets, they would proclaim Jesus to the poor children in that area. They would walk with them. They would serve them. They would feed them. And they would give them Jesus. That was a Sunday school back then. And they supported and served hundreds of them. And they started scores of them all over the place from a small group. It's like a handful. I mean, we got a couple dozen of these, right? Just a, just a small group. And at the time, Bibles were really hard to come by, much more so than they are now. They're much more expensive and difficult to get your hands on. Nowhere nearly readily accessible like they are to us now. And so they started, as they looked around and saw that a lot of people didn't have access to the scriptures, especially poor people, they started this massive Bible society. And they recruited all these people and they raised all this money and they did all this work and they worked themselves like crazy and they ended up giving tens of thousands of Bibles to people all over their country, which again were much more expensive and hard to come by than they are now. It's a good group. And there was a guy in their group, you may have heard of him, his name was John Newton. I got a dude in their small group. Some of you history buffs are going, really? Newton wrote a little tune called Amazing Grace that we opened our service up with earlier. Newton, one of the greatest and most brilliant poets, authors, and it was really powerful preacher. Um, he was like a man of the cloth. And he, he wrote Amazing Grace, a lot of other really amazing stuff. This incredible guy played a huge role in, in, in the reform that was brought about through, through this group. And there was a guy in this group named William Cowper. William Cowper was another brilliant hymnist. In fact, he, in this small group, he and John Newton, they would hang out together and they would write songs together and they wrote all these brilliant hymns. And one of the hymns that he wrote, which is my favorite, is God Moves in a Mysterious Way. We're going to sing it in a few minutes because it's still happening. And there was this lady in the group. Her name was Hannah Moore. She was a really brilliant author. 
Um, but then she started hanging out with this small group and they said, you know what? Her publishers got really upset with her. She was, she had made a fortune selling books and essays and poetry and plays. She was brilliant. Um, but then, um, she started hanging out with a small group an awful lot, apparently too much. And her publishers were all mad because they're like, you're too Christian for wide appeal. And they like cut her. They're like, you're washed up. You're done. So she's like, all right, I'm going to write books about how to be kind. And she wrote this incredible, incredible, like, like, like it was this remarkable work that really changed, changed their country, had a huge part of what they were doing. And in this group, I'm still going, there's this guy, uh, there's the, the Thornton family. And the Thornton family, they, they were some of the most successful business people uh, in the group. They were the most successful and some of the most successful around. They were just really savvy and, and, and they were connected and they, they fueled a lot of what happened. And um, in their, their efforts, they, they got connected with this, this kind of young, talented guy who had sort of been hanging around Clapham and they connected with him. They saw a lot of potential in him. And they encouraged him, man, maybe you should get into politics like you're really articulate. And um, also, you should, you should like follow Jesus at all costs. And this guy, who's again, really talented, exceptional, charismatic dude, he had, at this point, kind of had sort of the cultural Christianity thing. He wasn't following Jesus. He wouldn't say well, but he knew about Jesus. He had family members who were all into Jesus. And so he kind of knew about that, but he's like, hey, I'm going to keep that on the fringe. I'm going to have other pursuits. And they said, no, this needs to be the, like the throbbing center. You need, to, you need to follow Jesus at all costs. And he said, yeah, you know what? You're right. And he decided to follow Jesus at all costs. And then they helped him get into politics. And, and then it didn't take long after that because he was such a sort of a gifted, charismatic dude that he became like the leader of their small group. And then he was for, for many years, the leader of this little small group. Um, and he was just such a charismatic dude. His name, by the way, was William Wilberforce. Some history buffs go, oh, William Wilberforce, you mean the guy who led the efforts to abolish the slave trade? Yeah, that guy. It was that guy. This little small group found him and said, I see some potential. You need a lot more Jesus, though. Got him a lot of Jesus, helped him get into office. And then he took on the cause to abolish the slave trade. And for 15 years, this supercharged small group directed all of their energy and effort toward launching a nationwide campaign that captivated the minds of the masses to end slavery in the British Empire. And with Wilberforce leading the way, that's exactly what they did. <laughs> that's a, I mean, that's a pretty good small group. <laughs> I left a lot out too. I, I don't have time. They, they also brought prison reform. They, they pushed through child labor laws, education reform. They published a monthly magazine called the Christian Observer because why not? I, the list goes on. It's a good group. I'd, I would say strong to quite strong, that small group. <laughs> Quality. So here's a, here's a, here's a big question. I think this is a big question. How in the world did that happen? I mean, come on, how does that happen? Was this group just like so stacked with super talented people? I mean, yeah, they were, right? I mean, yeah. But now, now I think we've got like a chicken or the egg question going on. And here's a really important question that I'd like for you to think on. I'm not going to answer, but I want you to think on it. Did these people... did? 
did they do such great stuff because they were so gifted and so empowered? Or, or were they so gifted and so empowered because they put their hands to such great stuff? Maybe what happened around Claflin Commons was so exceptional and so unique that, that no other small group of people, no matter how dedicated or talented or exceptional, could ever follow suit. But maybe not. There's this verse that I really love. Lord, I've heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, Lord. Repeat them in our day. In our time, make them known. I should add, this is really important, that these people were not perfect by any means. In fact, they were, they were flawed. Some of them pretty deeply flawed. William Cowper, um, the great writer, um, <laughs> he teetered in and out of sanity, like from day to day and from week to week. He, was, he lived on, on a razor's edge. John Newton, who became such a huge force in the abolitionist movement, he, we went so far to put an end to that horrible, despicable practice. But the reality is, he ran slave ships for two decades. He, he didn't have blood on his hands. He had pools of blood on his hands. Their pastor was a guy named John Venn. He was, a, he was a perfectly talented, wonderful dude. But he really wanted to be George Whitfield. George Whitfield was like this rock star preacher with a huge platform at the day. He's like, I want to be like that guy. But he didn't quite have the chops. <laughs> and he struggled with bouts of depression his entire life. John Thornton did amazing things. But he had some serious daddy issues. Like some pretty significant ones. Wilberforce almost died as a young man and he suffered from colitis and who knows what all else his entire adult life he suffered immensely that's kind of his thorn in the flesh and I could go on and on Hannah Moore was told she was done and washed up I mean on and on we could go they were flawed they were they, they suffered they suffered um, but they also changed the world they changed the world is it is it crazy to look at the way that God used them and then echo the words of Habakkuk and say, Lord, renew them in our day? In our time, make them known? I don't, I don't think so. I want to point out a few things um, about the Clapham Saints, as they're sometimes called. All right? Sometimes they're called the Clapham Circle because they're around the Clapham Commons. And then sometimes because um, of a horrible editorial mistake, they're called the Clapham Sect which sounds creepy and culty, and that's not really what happened. But um, we're not going to call them that. So the Clapham Saints. And um, I want to talk about how they did what they did for just a little bit, and we could never begin to unpack it. Um, because I think we can learn a lot from the way that they operated. First of all, this idea of kingdom urgency or gospel urgency or, or just, just flat out, they, they weren't satisfied. They refused to be satisfied. They were radically entrepreneurial. They said, whatever needs to be done in order for more people to know Jesus and less people to suffer, then we're going to do it, period. And there was this sense of urgency in them that I can find no reason that it would be greater in them at that point than it would be in us in our day. This radical urgency, and it was, it was fueled by a few things. Uh, first of all, multi-generational community. 
That's big words, but old people and young people and everything in between had this deep, we're living life together. We know one another. We live next door. You can stay in my spare room type of community where they really walked it out. I'm going to read you a quote from Stephen Tompkins, who's written about these folks a lot. Uh, These were people for whom family and friendship were of the utmost importance. They lived in each other's spare rooms, married each other's brothers and sisters, prayed together, worded together, dreamed and schemed together, consoled each other, and criticized each other with ruthless honesty. To simply tell the story of their work would be to miss a whole dimension of it. And this deep, multi-generational community. And, and, and back, to the, back to the diagram. I think, I think at our church, we, we do community really well. And, and in pockets, we do deep community. I'm nowhere near satisfied, but that's a beautiful thing in our church. I'm not sure we do so great, honestly, at multi-generational community. If you think that these people accomplish these things without the wisdom of age and the zeal of youth working in tandem, <laughs> you're crazy. There's something beautiful. There's something that reflects the kingdom and the heart of the kingdom. When there's deep community where we're walking together and, and, and doing so in a, in a multi-generational capacity. It's really, really crucial. Uh, another thing uh, that they did um, is they were known for incredible social concern. And you could tell that just from the list of things that they accomplished. They wanted to see souls saved first and foremost. They wanted people to know Jesus, but they made no apologies for the fact that they wanted to see all people in all stages of life to thrive in every way possible. They were accused a lot along the way of having this secret agenda. They're like, oh, you just want to serve the poor and you want to put an end to injustice and you want to distribute Bibles and you want to feed people and you want to plant all these churches and you say you're doing it in order to help people. You really just want to give them Jesus. That's, that's like the secret undercover thing. You say that you want child labor laws reformed, but in reality, you just want to have a voice to preach Jesus to the children. And there was this like false dichotomy that emerged where there's these two categories of like preaching Jesus and like everything else that might look like kindness. And they, they never saw that separation. They, they never saw it. Um, sharing the gospel, fighting oppression, serving the poor. For them, these things were inseparable. They were indistinguishable. They were all the same thing. It was all the Lord's work. There was no fake, sacred, secular, divide, holy things. No, 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 no. It was all the Lord's work. When William Wilberforce decided that he was going to follow Jesus no matter what, it pushed him toward doing ministry. In spite of the fact that he was a member of parliament, he said, well, maybe I need to go do the work of the Lord. And so he went to John Newton, John Newton, who is a minister. And he went to John Newton and said, do I need to leave parliament and go do the work of the Lord? And John Newton says, you need to do the work of the Lord by remaining in parliament. They, they saw the opportunity of the positions that they were in and they leveraged it to help change the world. So uh, they were also incredibly strategic and patient because these things don't happen overnight. Incredibly strategic. Like, okay, just, I, 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 I can't absolutely prove this, but I, I think this is the case. Um, I mentioned earlier John Venn, the, the pastor who wanted to be Whitfield, that guy. John Venn, I can relate to that. I want to be a big shot too. So John, John Venn um, was the pastor of this 
of this group. And then this is called a, a Venn diagram, isn't it? Did you guys know it's called a Venn diagram? His grandson invented the Venn diagram. He was a mathematician, sharp dude. And when he published his works on diagrams, he goes, oh, this one's not new. I've been watching this happen for generations. The generations before me has been doing this. These people were so strategic and intentional that it's altogether possible that sitting around the table saying, how do we change the world? How do we help people? How do we get people out of suffering? How do we make justice happen? That they were so strategic that they stinking invented the Venn diagram in order to lay out their strategy. They were intensely strategic. Because these things don't just happen without planning. And they were intensely patient because these things don't happen overnight. And as we as said earlier, each one, this was part of their strategy, each one discerned how to leverage the influence of where God had called them. So they sat around the room and they said, hey man, I'm a writer. And I've heard the pen is mighty. And I feel like I can spread ideas. Somebody else said, I'm a politician. And I've got a voice that maybe other people don't. Somebody else said, I'm a preacher. I'll stand up and proclaim the name of Jesus. Somebody else said, you know what? I'm, if you put me in front of people, I will pee my pants. That's the worst idea ever. But I'm a pretty good businessman. And I've got some influence. And, and I, I, we've had some success. And I can help fund and fuel these things. Some other people, like John Newton and Cowper, just like, we just need to sing about it, everybody. We just got to sing a song here. And they said, here's what I can do, and here's what I can do, and here's what I am, and here's the opportunity I have because of the position that I'm in, and let's leverage this together to bring about lasting and meaningful change, and they did. They failed along the way. The abolition of the slave trade, that didn't go through on the first try. They tried again and again and again. This colossal, massive effort to try and get it passed, and they failed. And this colossal, massive effort to try and get it passed, and they failed again and again and again. And after 15 years, finally finally the abolition of the slave trade another another 30 years after that before the the abolition of slavery itself and they saw it through to the end because they were they were patient even in the midst of failures another thing to do we haven't talked about yet we didn't talk about it yet because it didn't go very well um they colonized sierra leone like this small group of people that said you know what let's go to sierra leone and establish a place called freetown and Freetown will be a place where, where slaves who have won their freedom or we've bought their freedom, they can go there, and that's in, it's in Western Africa, they can go there, we can set up education and systems and a place for them to know the gospel, and they can really thrive in this area, and then from there it can be a launching point to spread the gospel throughout all of Africa, and the whole thing failed. It was a horrible, miserable failure. This beautiful idea crashed and burned. So I said, all right, let's get back around the tables, start drawing circles, and figure out how to make this thing happen. They were flawed, but they were faithful. They were determined. They were strategic. They were patient. And, and here's what I really think, again, it all boiled down to what we talked about last week. They shared. They recognized that they were people of privilege solely because they had the gospel. And then they looked around and said, what other privilege do we have that we can share? And as 1 Thessalonians 2.8 says, and this is what they did. Because they loved people so much, they were delighted to share with people not only the gospel of God, but their very lives as well. They gave it all. Here's an important thing about this. History recognizes these stories as the heroic efforts of these really amazing individuals. 
You got Venn, the, the stirring preacher, and you got Thornton, the brilliant businessman, and Hannah Moore, the educator and the writer. Hannah Moore, the writer, didn't even tell you she started 11 schools and ran them on her own. You got Wilberforce, the great liberator. John Newton, the great hymnist and preacher, on down the list. For many of you, you know these names, but you don't know these names in conjunction with one another. Because history tells this story as a collection of individual heroes. But that's revisionist history. That is not what happened. These are not the exploits of super talented individuals. They are the collective work of a group of determined, faithful people. A small group of people fueled by the Spirit of God, inspired and spurred spurred along by one another, they got together and they decided that they could make the world better. That more people could know Jesus and that fewer people had to suffer. And they did it together. And it was super hard. And it was exhausting on every level. And it was radically sacrificial. I mean, I can't even, I tried to sort of add it up in my mind, but these people, they earned, they raised, and they gave away many, many, many fortunes, many fortunes. It was hard and they suffered and they fought and they failed and they toiled and they sweat, but they changed the world and it was never boring and no one ever looked around at their life and wondered if they were actually doing something that made a difference. Nobody ever stared at their shoes in dark moments and wondered if they should have given their lives perhaps to something greater. Important wrinkle in this story is that their kids... Their kids, wives multi-generational, they saw their parents so filled with passion, so engaged in a story so much bigger than their own, that their kids, instead of resenting them for it, joined them in it. And their kids fought alongside them. And together they changed the world. Hey, there's this really horrible myth out there that um, church and going to church is about um, behaving It's about, here's where you come to learn the rules. If you break them, I'll make you feel like crap. And then you'll redouble your efforts to follow the rules. And for a whole lot of people, they think that's what church is about. It's about keeping your nose clean and eating your broccoli. I'm never going to stand up here and tell you to eat your broccoli. I don't like like broccoli. If it's really cooked and a lot of cheese, maybe. If you want to, if if you want if you want behavior management, if if you want if you want to learn how to be sweet and nifty, then go to an etiquette school or something. You're going to do a lot better there. But if you want to change things, if you want to be a part of the redemptive history of East Tennessee and beyond, if if you want to live a life that has a story that's worth telling. If you want to like struggle and sweat and fail and suffer and succeed, 
all in a, in a fight for people to know Jesus and push back darkness and oppression and suffering, then you need to be in the church. You need to be in the church. Not just attending a church building. This is a good thing. I'm for this. All right. Put a lot of work into it, actually. But this, this isn't the church, by the way. This is a meeting of the church. This is something you attend. It's not something that you are or something that, you, that, that defines you. The church, by contrast, is the hands and feet of Jesus. It's imperfect people on a mission to see his kingdom come and his will be done on earth like it is in heaven. And here's, in a nutshell, what this series is all about. You just don't want to give your life to anything less than that. You don't want to spend your life on anything less than a no-holds-barred pursuit for the glory of God and the good of people to see his kingdom come and his will be done on this broken, messed-up earth just like it is in heaven. That's what we're about.